Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Sound Agriculture. I'm lead content editor, Brian O'Connor. On the podcast this week, we're speaking to Steve Wilkins, who finished second in Wisconsin for the National Corn Growers Association Annual Yield Contest in the No-Till Non-Irrigated category. Wilkins was one of several growers profiled in the No-Till Farmer special report, No-Till Corn, Pushing the Boundaries of Yield Potential. It's available on our website. Lesseter Media Digital Content Editor Michaela Pauchner discussed Wilkins' approach to nutrient management, planning, and more. I am from uh, the southern Sheboygan County, uh, Wisconsin area. Uh, we farm kind of in a, in a three-county area of Sheboygan, Washington, Ozaki, where it all comes together. And we've kind of been in this area um, since the 1850s, so quite a few years and Got a couple of farms here, a couple of farms there, but that's kind of, we've, we've always had livestock on the farm and uh, we were a dairy farm for a very long time. And about 10 years ago, um, the cows left uh, the operation and uh, then we did just a little bit more on the row crop side of things. But my parents have always enjoyed the animals. I've got an older brother who really enjoys machinery. Uh, my sister is into animals, primarily like horses and veterinary medicine. And I've always kind of taken to the row crop side of things. So um, it's just growing things is of interest to me and I really enjoy it. And how many acres are you farming and is it all no-till? Yeah, so I farm uh, with my dad and we do, a, we do a few things for some neighbors here and there. So all in, um, we're just a little under a thousand acres which is, it's enough for me because I have a, a full-time job off the farm uh, that I really enjoy. And my parents are getting a little bit older, so uh, it's enough. And um, we primarily are all no-till. Um, we're still transitioning um, a few fields, but we've got some plans in place to get those kind of taken care of and some improvements in field tile and drainage and stuff put in to get that to a better state. So yeah, for the most part, we do know till just about everything. And we've had some fields that I think have, you know, they might be going on 20, 25 years now that have been no till them. They're, they're pretty highly productive pieces of ground and we do really well on them. Great. And that's a great segue into what we're talking about today, which is your win in the 2021 National Corn Yield Contest. You placed second in Class D no-till non-irrigated in Wisconsin with a yield of 315.3779 bushels. Um, a great yield, as you said, on that great ground that you're getting those high numbers. Um, so for this specific um, plot, can you walk me through what hybrid you planted, um, your planting population, and then um, any details about planting to start? Sure. Uh, so the hybrid that I used was a 102 day hybrid from a golden harvest. And that's the, I work for Syngenta off the farm and that's one of the brands that we represent and I work with. So I've been planting the hybrid for a handful of years and uh, I, I always really liked it. It had really good agronomics at a very good uh, top end yield. Uh, so I knew it had potential to really uh, reach a higher yield level and, uh, you know, if I go back even before last year in 2020, and I thought we had a, a better yield, but we had an early frost that clipped us and, uh, you know, cut our growing season about two weeks short. 
otherwise we may be uh might have been talking a year earlier so i knew coming off of uh 2020 i was you know i could do something really good with that product and it just so happened that last year we didn't have that early frost the stars kind of aligned and we were able to get a really good yield check out of it so i guess i you start with genetics when you look at high yield you never want to limit yourself and it's really important that you understand you know what you can do from a top end yield potential so that's number one um the second one to me is i'm very particular about planning date and emergence I think so much yield is made or lost at the time of planting. So I, I'm willing to wait a few extra days if I have to, to make sure that the emergence is as uniform and as consistent as possible. And, uh, you know, some years that happens, some years it doesn't. We do live and we're subjected to all the challenges of the weather. Um, but I like the soils to be a little bit warmer. Um, this is the third year in a row. I think I had all of my soybeans planted before I put a kernel of corn in the ground just to make sure that everything is as realistically good as possible. So emergence is key. Um, ideally, I want everything up out of the ground within a 12-hour time period. Uh, certainly, I want it out within 24. And if that doesn't happen, I can still raise a good corn crop, uh, but it's probably not going to be in that realm of, I would say, record type of yield. Okay, so a lot of focus uh, on that. Um, and I guess after I look at that, it, it all goes back to fertility for me. Um, I don't necessarily put on what I would say is excessive amounts of fertilizer, uh, but what I try to make sure is that everything goes into the root zone. Um, every nutrient that I apply is probably within you know, an inch or two of the base of the plant um, at the root zone so it can take it up and there's good interceptions and that really helps um, if you get into dry stretches or whatnot. So I love, uh, you know, I I'm a, consider myself a soil conservationist, but I love the concept of feeding the plant, maybe overfeeding the soil when you're going for top end yield. So um, nutrients are expensive. You don't want to waste anything and I want everything possible in that root zone for the plant to take up. So talking about the nutrients, what did you apply to that high yielding plot and at what rates and when were you doing that? Sure. So uh, one of the things that my dad did a couple of years ago is um, he kind of retrofitted our planter and uh, we've got we actually have older equipment. So do I like new equipment? Absolutely. But I think people can actually raise a really good crop, even if they don't have the latest and greatest uh, iron on the farm. So um, we've got a Kinsey uh, 3000 corn planter and it used to be an inner plant and we took the inner plants off of it and uh, we put on liquid fertilizer capability. So, you know, the planter we can put on inferro and we can put on liquid and we can put on dry and we use all three of those. So when that planter goes across the field, we've got a lot of stuff going on. It is time consuming, but I certainly think it pays dividends when you look at the outcome at the end of the year. So on a typical pass um, on the planter, I'll be putting down about 150 pounds of uh, mosaics S10 um, in a two by two type fashion. And we do aim for two by two, not like a two by O. And we'll also put down about 150 pounds of uh, mosaics aspire as well. So we've got about 300 pounds of dry product going on in that two by two type of uh, fashion. 
And then I'll run about 20 to maybe 25 gallon an acre of a liquid nitrogen mix where I'll throw in. It'll be about like a 28005. And we dribble that out the back. I prefer to get it in the ground, but it just doesn't uh, quite work that way on our planter. And then I start to play with um, other nutrients as well. So into that mix, I'll put in uh, potassium acetate. I'll run a couple of gallons of that per acre. I'll throw in a quart of zinc, a quart of manganese, a quart of boron as well. Uh, so that all goes into kind of my liquid solution. And then in furrow, uh, we run about... Uh, five gallons of a mix of some acids, some humic acids, uh, some sugars, humates. And then I also run um, a product by Nature's called Impulse as well. And then I'll cut that with about two to three gallons of water. So all in, we're putting about eight gallons in a furrow. Uh, something new that I did last year as well, as I added the uh, product Zyway onto the planter, I didn't put it in furrow. I ran it out the back of my nitrogen solution in some of our heavier soils, we really struggle with fusarium crown rot. And uh, we, you know, we didn't have that problem last year in any of the acres that we put that product down on. So I certainly think that was a big help in keeping the plant healthier, longer, keeping that root system uh, clean and helping uh, the tail and the grain fill. And how are you deciding what you're putting into that mix of nutrients? Trial and error. So I've been working on stuff for a long time. Um, I've traditionally, I'll soil sample almost every single year to have a good idea of where I'm at. I'll tissue sample a lot of stuff as well. And this past uh, year or two, I've started to take a lot of uh, sap samples within the plant. So I really try to monitor uh, nutrient uptake, nutrient levels, and to have a basic understanding of where my hybrids are on the farm per the yields that I'm getting out of it. And at first it's a lot of data and I probably didn't quite know what to make of all of it. But after a few years, I can start to understand that if I'm tracking at certain levels, certain yield goals now I think are in reach. Okay. So it's, um, I would say it's an inexact science. I'm always interested in talking with people who might be doing that too and learning more about it. But I look back and, you know, three years ago, my samples were always telling me that I never had enough potassium in the plant. So then we started to add more than just the dry granule stuff. We went to some of the uh, potassium acetates and whatnot. And then I started to notice uh, our soils in this area are relatively high in manganese and I was running low on it. So then we started to add this and that. And just from, you know, basic understanding is every time now that I apply nitrogen, we're putting sulfur down and we also put potassium, those nutrients work together. You kind of got the same thing with the zinc and phosphorus. So it kind of just starts to take on a life of its own uh, when you're dealing with products and you're, you know, there's antagonisms if you have too much of one and not enough of the other. So, uh, but I'm far, far from perfect. So we, we keep working on it and for all of the maybe success I've had in some areas. I've had just as many challenges and others, and uh, those are learning opportunities. What do you think is one of the biggest things you learned this past year with your this specific plot? Sure. One of the biggest things that I learned, I would say in 20, um, 2021, is we were so dry early. Um, I've, I've never, in our area, typically we have too much water in May and it delays us from planting date. 
I never seen a spring as dry as what we had last year to the tune where we had uh, winter wheat fields basically die over um, Memorial Day weekend. Like that's how dry it got in some of the lighter ground. And um, I wasn't, uh, I what didn't really know what to think of it because the corn was growing, uh, but it was just so dry. Like things were happening that didn't make sense. So because of that, I started to look at um, plant growth hormones and things like that that can help with stress-reducing agents. And I really, uh, I had dabbled in them before, but I really used a lot of them last year. And, you know, there's a lot of products out there in the marketplace that work. I myself used a couple um, from Stoller uh, that really worked well for me. And uh, I saw a big difference in fields where I applied, you know, your gibberellic acids, um, your cytokinins, that type of stuff over those that I didn't. And I put that back on, you know, the stress reducing agents. And specifically, I think uh, last year, Every two weeks, I was applying a product called BioForge Advanced, and boy, that gave me some really, really big benefits that I didn't have on fields that I didn't use that on. And do you think that that application strategy and all of the nutrients that you were putting on, was that the key to your high yield, or what do you think was behind that? I certainly think it helps. I mean, the key to, to me, the key to high yield is how many days or one do I have my plants and do I have a uniform set of plants? And then after that, I mean, I can do anything I want from an application or a fertilizer standpoint, but if I don't get proper sunlight and water in a good fall, I mean, it doesn't really make a difference. So to me, if I had to, if I had to attribute it to one thing, it was probably we had a beautiful October last year and I got two to three more weeks of grain fill that I didn't get. And I, sometimes I don't get on an average year. So, I mean, I'll tell people that I talk to in the area, undoubtedly 2020, I had a better crop in 2021. It just didn't work out because of the weather. So kind of my philosophy on corn, soybeans, wheat, whatever I grow is if I don't get a record yield, it's not because I didn't do anything. It was because the weather didn't cooperate and that's out of my hands. But the more that I see is you can implement a better fertility practice and you can do some other things where you're not going to neutralize weather, but you can start to do a lot to mitigate stress on a plant that when you get hot, when you get dry, they'll hang in there quite a bit better than what most people would think. And I've started to tell a lot of uh, customers that I work with off the farm that plants can handle stress a heck of a lot better sometimes than what we as people can when we observe them. So for the nutrients that you're applying, are you doing that only on your high yield acres or is this a program that you apply to all of your acres? I pretty much run it across everything. Um, if I find something that works and it's ROI responsive, it'll go across the whole farm. Now, on there, there's always a few acres that I'll play around with stuff and probably throw good money after bad. But once a, once you find something that's not positive ROI and works, well, then I pretty much blanket it across the, the rest of the acres that I farm and it just becomes part of the system. And it's really hard to say, you know, does this do that? Maybe, but I know if I don't have it, um, I definitely would consider myself a higher input a farmer, but it wasn't always that way. It just kind of evolved into it. And um, no, I don't, in, in my personal situation, I don't have time to farm a whole lot of acres. 
And that's fine, but I make sure that the ones that I do, I try to get the most out of it. And it's a little bit of a game and I enjoy it. How are you measuring your costs and your return on investment? Yeah, so I keep records almost at nausea. So I'm, I'm very numbers driven when it comes to a production side. And I've, what I've always found out is, um, you know, commodity prices are relatively good now compared to the last couple of years. But when I first started kind of farming out on my own, uh, prices weren't very good at all. And I just figured there's no possible way I could ever cut inputs enough to be profitable. The only way I could ever make things work on a balance sheet is to produce more. And so then when you start to look at, okay, what are things I can do to produce more? Kind of things just kind of take on a life of their own. So I'm very astute to um, the dollars and cents of all the inputs. Um, I value, I don't cut a lot of corners. I do look for a good value proposition from input providers uh, that we work with. And you know, we do business with three or four people and try to spread stuff around as much as possible. But uh, cheap is definitely not in the vocabulary uh, that I use. And uh, I, I try to look for things that are fairly priced uh, but bring a positive ROI and we track it all. I mean, every scale ticket, we know what field it comes from, where within the field, geospatially referenced everything. So we try to keep, I spend a lot of time looking at computer screens over winter, monitoring things, making plans for the next year. What are your strategies for managing all that data? And what do you think that other people should be doing? Maybe if they're, even if they're not doing it as intensely as you, but what they can start doing to see improvements on their own operation. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the things that I always like to tell people or just ask them is corn seed, the soybean seed, whatever it is that we as farmers plant, you know, the potential of those genetics are sometimes three to four to five times more than what we're getting out of it. And if you look at your large yield guys like a David Hula who are claim to be getting that 600 bushel mark, um, a lot of people are still happy with a 200 bushel corn crop. And uh, to me, 200 bushel corn crop is pretty close to a crop failure. So I, I like to help people understand that the seed they're planting can do magnitudes more than what they're getting out of it, and therefore invest in your crop. And Sure, it, it takes money, it takes capital, it, you know, it's an investment, but it's pretty easy to see that you can get pretty strong returns in the process as well. So, you know, what would I tell people? And the first thing that I would tell them to start with is make sure you understand the genetics that you're getting. And the way you manage genetics actually can have a much bigger effect than planting the latest, greatest hybrid. There's, you know, the hybrid that I used last year was, I think that's five years old. So that's not exactly new genetics. And yet I still know there's things I can do different with that product to get more yield out of it. So understand where you're at from a yield standpoint, um, understand the capabilities. And I really like the notion of just make sure that you can continually get nutrients into that plant in a form that it needs and when it needs it. It's simply the four R's of nutrient management. And they're very simple, but they're very true. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the potential of the genetics of the seed, 
what exactly are you thinking about when you're trying to manage that? Sure. So, you know, it's, you look at all the things you can't control in production agriculture, and you look at the things you can't control. And the one thing we can all control is when we decide to purchase a variety, in essence, we've just set our yield ceiling because a, a form of genetics can only go so high. So that's why I always inquire and, and I ask questions and I look at data for myself to figure out what's the subset of products that have a higher level yield potential. And those aren't necessarily warranted for every single acre that's out there, but on your more productive ground, where on a good year, you know, you see that yield monitor spike up more, you just know it's maybe the, the cow yard that was a dairy farm for 30 years and it's just loaded with nutrients. Uh, yeah, I definitely want people to plant a higher yielding hybrid. Um, I'd encourage people. And one of the things that I do too is I plant fuller season hybrids as well. And uh, I, I don't like to pay to dry corn, but I'm not afraid to either uh, because as a manager, I can buy LP to dry corn, but what I can't do is get yield potential after I plant it. So I always encourage people plant the fullest season that you can, uh, because on average, you know, statistics will tell us for every single RM, your yield potential goes up about three bushel an acre. So, you know, if you want to plant a 95 day corn versus 105, just know on paper, you got about a 15 to 20 bushel yield opportunity by planting the fuller season one. And you can actually buy a fair amount of LP and gas to dry that down uh, with the yield benefits that you get from that. That's a really interesting perspective and one that I think will resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, farmers take a huge amount of risk. So control the controllables. And, you know, I, I fight this all the time with a lot of people that I work with. Nobody wants to dry corn because it's expensive. Well, yeah, it is. But if you let the dollars and cents really resonate with you, it it actually most every single year pays. I think there is one year, 2019, things were wet and uh, and that one hurt a little bit. Um, but uh, you can't let emotion get in front of statistics, numbers, data, whatever it is to make and drive decisions. I'm talking about your equipment. I know you had mentioned earlier that you don't always need the fast brand new equipment to get these high yields. So what are um, you doing with your equipment that's different? And what are some things that you've tried in the past that you won't go back to? Sure. Um, so I, I think I explained a little bit around our planter setup. Um, you know, we've got dry liquid um, and furrow on it. Um, we actually, believe it or not, we still run older finger meters. Um, so I certainly know if we'd move to, there's better on the market, uh, but I think we still do, um, given that technology, and I'm very pleased with the spacing and stuff that we have and the C drop and the uniformity. Um, so I would like to update that. I think in a, in a short while we probably will, but I don't, I think you can overcome equipment limitations by genetics that you would select and by fertility type management. I think there's probably more yield that you can gain in that area than going out and buying the latest planter, which undoubtedly will do a better job of placing seed and spacing. And that's a strong component of yield. 
but that's going to give you bushels an acre if we can do other things right. And I think we can be looking at, you know, tens of bushels an acre that we can add to a bottom line. So and that's one thing that I would say. Um, a few things I've done different is um, we had an old sprayer that it kind of ripped apart, turned it into a wide drop bar. Absolutely love doing that. Um, when I'll wide drop everything. It's just really important to get nutrients at the base of that plant in case it gets dry. I mean, you think of it, we're in 30 inch rows. Um, if you dig up a root system from the base of it, 95% of your roots are, you know, they go out eight inches from the center of the plant. So if you're in a 30 inch row, that means you've got 20, 22 inches where there's not a lot of activity going. So why do you want to put fertilizer there? Why do you want to you know, maybe band anhydrous or something six inches below where your root's ever going to get? There's just a lot we can do for better placement of fertility. And that's really important, especially right now with the cost of what NP and K has done. And that's why I always tell people, you can buy a few you know, things of equipment to run across your acres. High yields don't always necessarily mean you need to put a lot more nutrients down. Uh, most every year I can run about a 0.65 to at worst a 0.8 pound of N per bushel of corn. Um, and we don't, we have good soils. Um, the average is probably a 2.8 to a 3.0 organic matter. So they're not great. I mean, they're good, but we're not getting huge amounts of mineralization that are making up for lack of nitrogen. So it's just, it's key to get nutrients to that plant and then understand that if you are putting nutrients to the plant, a lot of nitrogen, a lot of sulfur, um, even some other ones, they're about 30% of it's taken up after pollination. So you need fertilizer late into the season. And after you plant tassels, your root system is done growing. So again, if you don't have nutrients where it needs it, it's not going to go find it. And August is a dry month. So you're not going to get a lot of water to keep pushing fertility into that root so it can intercept it. So I just, I can't underestimate and understate just how important I think fertilizer in that root zone is for so many different reasons. And I, you know, I've probably started to use significantly more liquid uh, potassium acetates and some of our droughtier soils. Boy, has that changed a lot of our performance on there. And I can get plant available potassium into that root zone and it can take it up late into the season and my day job keeps me pretty busy. There are some years I don't start combining corn until after Thanksgiving. And uh, in Wisconsin, you know, that, that gets kind of late. There could be snow on the ground, but I'll still combine green corn that late into the year because I don't want my plants to ever die. Um, I want those things to be alive as long as they possibly can. And even after a killing frost, that stalk will still stay green. And I've learned that the hard way because when I first started farming, I wasn't quite there. And I've combined corn to bean platform before because I didn't have my fertility right. And uh, let me tell you, that was not an enjoyable experience. So uh, you do that a few times and you start to learn really quick about what not to do and how to fix it. We'll get back to Michaela Pockner and Steve Wilkins in a moment. First, I want to thank our sponsor, Source by Sound Agriculture. Nutrients cost more today and can be hard to get when you need them. Thankfully, there's a better source of plant nutrition. It's your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nitrogen and phosphorus in your fields. Learn more about Source at www 
www.sound.ag. And now, back to Steve and Michaela. What's something you will never do again that you think other people can learn from? Something I will never do again. Probably what I just shared. Um, there was the second farm that I bought the first year I went in there and really I had, it was a neighbor's property. So I had an idea on what it was, but didn't understand the fertility quite right. And I, I really pushed it. I didn't have just, I didn't have the fertility to push the population, what I wanted to do. And um, I remember Labor Day weekend, I walked that field and uh, I tripped on a stone that I didn't pick. And I grabbed the corn plant as I was falling down and it just crinkled in my hand. And so I split a few stalks and they were hollow. And I was like, oh my goodness. Um, the corn had a really big yield on it because it, it put everything into the ear but the standability was horrible. And that corn probably was at two thirds milk line. So by the time we combined it, it was the flattest corn I've ever had in my life. And we took, uh, we took the bean platform out there to get what we could off of it. Uh, but to me, that goes back to, you know, I didn't understand the fertility component. And, um, you know, we did that. And two years later, after I got all the volunteer corn, fixed and cleaned up and put corn back in there again. And uh, to this day, that's the highest yielding corn field average I've ever had at a little over 280 bushel an acre. So it just shows what a little bit of um, pain and then attention to detail can do. Mm -hmm. And now as you're looking ahead to 2023, what are some things that are on your mind that you'll be tweaking or continuing or what are your plans? Sure. So one of the biggest things that we're doing this year with our crop rotation um, is we have it set up. We're going to do a lot more field tile. Um, I think if I can get water off the fields quicker in the spring, get them to warm up a little bit, uh, that'll get me an earlier planting date. And uh, I know that I'm losing a little bit of yield because I'll probably wait a week longer than what I want to, to make sure my temps and everything are right. So we're putting pretty sizable investments into field tile, uh, water drainage, uh, trying to get everything correct from that standpoint. Um, after that, I, I tend to be very high on populations. Most of the stuff that I plant on the low side of 38,000, the high side of uh, 42, probably going to back that down, maybe say like, probably won't be in the 40s, I guess is what I'd say uh, going forward. Um, I think I think we can probably maintain yield and we don't have to be quite that high from a population standpoint. So I'll be looking at population a little bit. Um, ideally, I do believe if you're not getting about 10 bushels, I'm sorry, excuse me, if you're not getting about seven bushels per thousand plants, you probably don't have to increase your population. Um, so I, I probably need to work a little bit more to understand why I got to be quite a bit higher on a population to get the yields that we tend to get, because I don't think we actually have to be, um, but that's kind of where I've ended up the last couple of years. So uh, population is the second one that I want to look at. And uh, I'm very intrigued by a lot of this talk of, you know, what actually goes into the furrow of the plant um, on the planter. There's a lot of work on 
sugars, biologicals. That's a really unique and evolving uh, sector. And, um, you know, there's some people that'll tell me never put phosphorus in furrow. And I've always been a very big believer of that. And I try to put as much in there as I can. So there's some different thoughts out there. And I certainly think my inferral program probably looks different in a couple of years as we continue to learn more about that and what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry if you mentioned this already, but are you currently using biologicals? Yeah, we use a little bit. Um, I think I started dabbling in some in 2020 use a few in 2021, use a few more this year. Um, I got a, a, a really good like, agronomist that I bounce a lot of ideas off. It gives me great feedback and I, I just trust the guy. So if he tells me to try something, I usually don't ask too many questions and I go with it. Um, but I've got a lot to learn there. I think there is a lot to learn there. And um, if, if I can get something that I can put in furrow that maybe makes nutrients in the ground more available or that helps build my root system to access more quicker and gives me more growth. That's great. Um, you know, I love to walk through a cornfield and look at what's above ground, but everything that happens is below ground. And it's just so important to make sure that you don't compromise your root system. Um, you don't have your down pressure set wrong. There's just so many things that when that planter goes across the field or if you're doing tillage, you don't want to restrict the root zone at any level because it will come back and it, it's going to cost you yield and money. For the biologicals, which ones are you currently using and have you seen any effects so far? That's a great question. Um, I could not tell you brand names, uh, which ones that I'm using. Um, I can tell you, I get them from uh, the Wilbur Ellis company, <laughs> but uh, specifically what they are, I don't, uh, I, I could not tell you that, but they're on the line of humic acids. Okay. So that much I do know. And um, we've used them now for a couple of years and we're putting them in furrow and that's, that's about what I got on them. So I got a lot to learn. I know we all have a lot to learn about biologicals at this point. But um, so talking about what you mentioned before, how conventional tillage, how damaging that can be. And I'm assuming that's part of the reason why you switched to no-till. So I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about how you made the, how and why you decided to turn it Sure. Um, so if I think back, I was, um, I was in high school and we had a wet spring. And we had a hay field that didn't make it through winter. And uh, we were, it was, it was wet spring. So it was a late spring. And I just remember walking out in the field with my dad and kind of just wondering what to do. And, you know, we, we kind of just looked at each other at the same time and said, well, what if we just plant into this? Like, why not? <laughs> and so we did. And that was our best corn that year. It was absolutely phenomenal. I'm like, okay, we're on to something. And so then you just start playing stuff and you do a little bit more. And so we put row cleaners in the planter and um, you just start changing things and we put the no-till cultures on and, you know, that's kind of what manifested itself. Uh, but we struggled with it for quite a while. And then 2012 came and that year we were still, I would say, in about a transition, but uh, we had a couple of the fields that we no-tilled corn in and 
we were running about 200 bushel in 2012 in that drought. Then we had a few fields that we did corn on corn conventional tillage, and uh, we we could not get out of the 80 bushel mark. And so that really kind of makes you stop and think like, my goodness, you look at soil health, water holding capacity, um, all that other stuff. And that kind of solidified, um, I think, our desire to continue to stay with a no-till type of system. And uh, where possible, you know, we do as much as we can. It's worked out well. Um, it's certainly taught us patience. But, you know, when you get into dry stretches like we're having now, and it looks like we will going forward, and I really don't see our corner soybeans rolling or, you know, tightening up when you can go to some areas um, in, in our general area. And you can see people that run their fields wet, that got compaction issues, yellow crops. And, um, you know, that's that cost you yield when you do that. Mm-hmm. When you were first getting started with no-till, how did you learn the nuances of the system? Trial and error. Um, if I could go back and do it all over again, um, I we probably should have put significantly more tile in some fields before we started, because uh, we're going to have to go back and do some of that now. And I certainly think that would have helped us, um, especially on wet years, to get the water off, get the ground to warm up sooner. Um, so that would, uh, yeah, if I could go back to when we kind of started this, that would have been the first thing that I would have done is that took the money that I saved from all the fuel and equipment from conventional tillage and put it right into tile and paid that off as quick as I possibly could have. Um, and I guess, you know, I think we're a little late to the dance on that, but that's where we're at right now is a lot of money's going into water flow and drainage and stuff. So that would be the biggest thing, but you know, it's, I don't know too many farmers in our immediate area who do a whole lot of no-till and some of that's because we've got some pretty sizable dairies and they've got manure and other things and they just run a little bit different system. So, you know, it's, there wasn't a whole lot of neighbors to go and talk to. Now I think the practice has, um, has sped up and we see a bunch more people doing it and that's great. You know, it's, it's better for the environment and I think it's probably better for their bottom line too, but um, trial and error every year we're changing something on the planter. It never fails. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the tiling. I don't know much about what it takes to put tile in. So does that have an effect on your soil? That's because you're now tilling and now you're putting tile in. Absolutely. Um, so what, what tile has done for us is in the month of uh, April and May, it's getting the excess water off of the fields and out of the soil as quick as possible. So our soils are drying quicker, they're warming faster in the spring, and those fields were able to get on them almost as early as what you could if you were in a conventional till or a strip till. But we're only taking out, out the excess water, so you know, the soils are still at capacity for the rest of the year. So that's really helping us out in spring. And when you have saturated soils, you have a whole other host of problems of nutrient availability, oxygen space, just overall soil health. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of tile. Um, it's the number one expense I have on the farm for multiple years running. And it probably will be for the next few until we get everything tiled to where we want it and the water flow where we want it to go. 
So the benefits that you're getting with the tile, with the better water flow and management, that outweighs having to disturb the soil to put the tile in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I uh, I don't ever anticipate having to retile anything that we're doing now as long as I farm. So, you know, I look at it as a one-time investment for the property that we tile and it should last me my farming career and hopefully into uh, the next person's as well. Uh, a lot of the tile that we have in our fields right now is put in in the 50s. So that's had, you know, almost an 80-year run and now it's starting to have some challenges and the stuff that we're putting in today is a lot better than what they had back then. And we can put in better uh, control valves and drainage flows and stuff like that. So it's uh, to me, it's one of the best things that we've done for yield potential and as well as uh, just overall soil health and soil quality. I can certainly tell you our earthworm population, um, our mag levels, a lot of other um, key indicators of soils have gotten significantly better where we can control excess water. Okay. Um, and are you guys using cover crops right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've really liked planting soybeans into cover crops. Um, the single biggest challenge that I have growing soybeans is white mold. And so if I can get a good a good mat of rye to help trick those spores into sporulating before the flowers around the beans to infect white mold. And that's just huge for me. I mean, it's, we raise really good corn. And if you look at the ratio of corn to beans, we're not anywhere close on bean yields is what we should be for the corn yields that we're getting. Uh, last year uh, was our best year on our farm raising beans. And uh, we were well into the 70 bushel average, which I'm I'm pleased with. I think that's good. But the corn is still a heck of a lot better. And that goes back to just the unbelievable disease pressure that we have, um, specifically to white mold. So cover crops have really helped me kind of dial down that white mold pressure and, and really help take our bean yields, I think, to a more appropriate type level. Are you just putting the cereal rye on your soybean acres or are you doing that across the board? No, we'll, um, we'll put them onto the corn acres as well. Um, and certainly anything that's in winter wheat, we'll get a, a multi-species type of deal in addition to that. And we've got a couple of fields that are enrolled in you know, long-term uh, programs for soil health as well. So we certainly want to do everything we can to you know, regenerate some fields that had you know, not had the best treatment in years past and get the soils to be as healthy as possible. And, you know, everyone wins in that because if I get a healthier soil, then I can get higher organic matter. Now my water holding capacity goes up. That'll help me raise a better crop. If I can get more organic matter, I can expect more mineralization for nitrogen. So I should be able to use less on that front. So you know, some people really have a problem figuring out how soil health pays. And to me, it's like a, it's an absolute no brainer. I mean, what's the value of an extra inch of water to your crop on August 15th when it needs it? You can't put a price tag on that, but that's mm -hmm. what it helps do. And then what are you using to terminate the rye? Uh, pretty simple. I mean, it's glyphosate is work. 
very, very well. Um, I wouldn't mind going to a roller crimper. Um, that to me would would be a nice addition. Uh, we're just not there yet. Um, time, equipment is kind of a limiting factor. That would be a nice addition for it. Um, but typically, I'll I'll put in a residual herbicide, um, go in with glyphosate, um, and I typically spray after we plant as well. So that it's just it's a nice system right now, and we'll continue to do more of it uh, going forward as well. And what is your typical planting date for the rye? Well, I mean, as as soon as the beans are off, usually we can have it in by October 10th to the 15th in the fall. Corn, I mean, sometimes I planted rye in spring. So it's the first kind of like as soon as a cross goes out of the ground, you put it in so it, it gets growing and stuff. And, um, you know, it grows and does what I want it to do. And then we'll spray it off. And I would like to get it all planted in the fall. But um, sometimes I don't combine corn until late again. And um, I actually like combining corn late on frozen ground. So I don't leave any compaction zones to combine or the tractor in the cart or anything. So uh, sometimes the spring for the soybeans that are going to be planted uh, come out of last year's corn crop. Okay. Um, and then you mentioned white mold was a problem for your soybeans. What are sure. you, aside from the cereal rye, what are you using to combat that? Yeah, uh, white mold, I could almost tell you is like one of the, <laughs> the veins of my existence. I've, I've seen white mold take 80 bushel bean fields you've had down to 20. So that's not a lot of fun. Um, white mold, I mean, I control it primarily with variety. Um, there's a couple of lines in the industry that still have phenomenal topic yield, but actually control white mold incredibly well. So I'm, I'm very particular on uh, the beans that we plant. And, um, you know, there's about three different varieties from a single company that we'll go with it, I think, are the best in the industry on white mold. Um, so variety is one. And then I'm a heavy sprayer for white mold as well. Um, I make a massive investment in two products called Omega and Endura. Um, they're, they're very expensive. It's not uncommon for me by the time I use those products with application costs. I mean, my gosh, you could, you can be 80 to $100 an acre just to fight white mold. But I also know when I do that, I don't, you know, I don't get mold hardly at all. So then I, I figure I'm, uh, to me, it's, it's anywhere from 30 to 50 bushel yield that I'm getting back. So that investment is still worth it. It's just really expensive. And I'm hoping that rye really will help eliminate not just my weed pressure, uh, but also the white mold spore. So I don't have to keep spending that money on it. Mm -hmm. I think your outlook, it goes back to what you had said earlier on that you don't like to do things cheap. You want to do it to make it work. And it sounds like you really are making it work. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it here in, in 2022, the year that we're in, I mean, you, you got a corn crop that's probably worth twelve to $1,500 an acre, depending on your yield and what you market to that. Why are you going to let dollars an acre of a product deter you from realizing that? And on beans, you might be $1,000 an acre. So there's just no way I'm going to shy away from putting down an extra application 
that I think is going to add yield um, because it might be a long time before we ever have prices like this again. So I'm all for one for uh, yield. I, I really, I've yet to figure out how not having a max yield is ever in your benefit. Was there anything else you wanted to add that we haven't talked about? Um, I think really maybe the, the only other item that we've started to do a little bit different is uh, we're much heavier into uh, winter wheat the past couple of years. So we've always grown some, but you know, a quarter to maybe a third of our acres uh, this year are into wheat. And that third crop is, boy, that's really helped us out uh, from a weed control standpoint. Um, I think we do a really good job controlling our, you know, we have mare's tail, water hemp, ragweeds, things like that. Um, but different rotation breaks disease cycles. Uh, I really value that as well. And that's really helping us drop our chemical pricing and programs on the row crops of corn and soybeans too. So I like that. I will continue to do more of it. I don't necessarily like pulling the combine out in the middle of summer just for that, but it's it's been a good thing. And I see more people across the corn belt doing that as well. So certainly the price of wheat helps, but um, three crops in a rotation makes all of them better. So you're doing one year corn, one year soybeans, one year wheat um, every three years? Typically, if, um, if it works out well in a 10 year cycle, I like to have two years of wheat, two years of beans, six years of corn. Uh, for myself, that's on paper, that's the most profitable. So you could think of it like a corn, corn, beans, wheat, corn, corn, beans, that type of deal is, um, that's how I've got it to pencil kind of out the best. And um, that's kind of what I'm starting to work and strive towards. I've done three years continuous corn no-till. We've had phenomenal success with it. Um, haven't tried four years yet. Um, I might on a on a few fields, but boy, that that takes an extra level of patience and management that uh, that's tough to do. I know some guys that are long term no till, and I just love talking to them. But when continuous no till corn is boy, that's tough. What do you think the secret is to managing that continuous long term corn? Well, so some of that will depend where you're at. Um, in my specific area, for me, it would be residue management because I tend to combine so late. I don't get any breakdown in the fall. So it's all sitting there in the spring for me. And you look at the carbon penalty you got to pay. Um, it's really hard to get that crop established. So that's what I would put as number one, um, maybe on a broader scale. Controlling insects would be probably a larger deal. Um, if specifically you have like corn rootworms and things like that, boy, that, that can really be challenging and then managing disease. Um, but there's some really good fungicides on the market that you can use to help control that. And, uh, that, you know, I'm not going to say that's easy, but, uh, to me, that's, if, if you're going to do that system and you probably ought to be spraying to keep your plants as healthy as possible. And, and that's one thing that we do too, uh, every acre we have is sprayed. Sometimes it's multiple times. So uh, corn, we typically run a two-pass on fungicides, and uh, rarely do I actually run it for disease. More so, it's for the plant health benefits, and that's you know that's that helps us out a lot. Uh, we're doing like a, a little like sidebar thing with the article, and I was just wondering if you were using any seed treatments. 
Absolutely. Um, huge into seed treatment. So on the soybean side, um, we use uh, products from uh, Syngenta and it would be their Cruiser Max uh, Vibrance seed treatment. And then we'll also put on a treatment for uh, sudden death syndrome, which is the uh, Saltro product as well. So uh, quite frankly, sometimes I paid more for the seed treatment than I have the actual soybean seed itself. We put that much value on the seed treatment because um, when we're no-tilling our beans into all of this corn residue, you've got grubs, you've got wire worms, you've got so much stuff out there. Uh, those beans need all the help they can get. And we continually cut our populations back on soybeans. Some of that's to help with uh, white mold as well. Um, so seed treatment to me is just, you know, it's a given on corn. No one questions it on corn. Uh, so why would you do it on soybeans? I, it just blows my mind. So we certainly, you know, we're huge on that. Uh, beans will put inoculants and everything on it as well. Um, but yeah, we're, we're large into that. Um, I don't think we really over-treat anything on corn. Uh, we'll put some micronutrients on the seed and in place of like a, a graphite or a talc, but uh, corn pretty much is what it is. You don't get many options from like seed manufacturers, but uh, soybeans, soybeans get everything we can give them. Is there a particular equipment dealer that you wanted us to name for the little sidebar? Well, we work um, primarily with um, a John Deere dealership, uh, Reister and Schnell up in Chilton. And uh, that's that's where my brother works as well. He's a salesman for them. So it works out really, really well. We get to keep things uh, in the family and it, it's just a, it's a really nice deal for us. So not all of our equipment is John Deere. I mean, our planters are uh, Kinsey. And so for that, um, you know, you can get Kinsey parts almost everywhere. So uh, probably don't work with a specific one, but um, the John Deere dealer Eastern and Chanel is the one that we're most closely aligned and associated with. What are your soil types in your area? Sure. So, I mean, they vary like everywhere. Um, our predominant soil types are um, Hockheim silty clay loams. Um, that's probably two-thirds of what we farm. Um, so they're good soils. Um, most of it are two to six percent slopes, two and a half, three percent organic matters, uh, pretty favorable uh, CECs and stuff like that. So um, that's, they're nice. And I, and I grew up on those soils, so I feel like I have an, an understanding of how to work with them too. Um, but it's it's interesting if I go back and look at a soil test from say 1995 versus one from 2005 and you know today uh, we, if we work with them we can change them and we can change them for the better mm -hmm. uh well those are all my questions i i really appreciate you making time for me no it's uh, i apologize that i couldn't be back and you couldn't come out to the farm and and visit but um maybe maybe next time um it's really really tough in eastern wisconsin to compete in yields because we just have so many limiting factors. So what happened last year won't happen every year. I've been working in a while at it, but um, hopefully, hopefully it happens again. So the highest I saw last year in the yield monitor was 360. So I know there's, there's a bit more out there that, that we can go after. It's just, 
figuring out how to do it and what needs to be done. But it sounds like you have that mindset where you're determined to figure it out and keep trying until you do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. I mean, it's, if I farmed thousands upon thousands of acres, I probably wouldn't be quite as intense, but um, I don't, and that's okay. So I try to make sure that everyone that we do farm, we get the most out of it. That's it for this week's episode. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Sourced by Sound Agriculture, once again, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you like today's discussion, the full take on Steve Wilkins approach to high yielding no-till corn is available on our website as part of the no-till corn pushing the boundaries of yield potential special report. It's all about no-tillers who participate in and win the NCGA annual yield contest. Uh, Just visit our store tab from the main page for description and to consider purchase. A link can also be found in this episode's webpage. More podcasts about no-till farming are available over at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. A transcript of this episode will be available there shortly. You can also subscribe so you can get a notification whenever we put out a new episode of any of our podcasts. If you have feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessetermedia.com. Or call me at 262-777-2413. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and our Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And make sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm lead content editor Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening and farm ugly. Mm-hmm.